So, um, Hare Krishna, welcome. It is um, International Women's Day today. So we'd like to especially welcome all the, the ladies who are listening to this class. Uh, here we go. Um, Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya So, <clears throat> today we are beginning with um, First Canto, Chapter 5, Text 23. And this is Nardamuni speaking to his disciple Vyasa. Aham puratita bhave bhavang mune dasyas tukasyas chana vedavadinam nirupito balaka eva joginam sushushane prabrashi nirvivikshatam. So, um, <clears throat> let's see here. Okay, just making sure everything's working here. Um, Narada begins by saying, "Aham, I, Pura, in the past." Uh, so how far back in the past? Atitha bhave, in a past existence. In other words, a past life. Abhavam uh, mune, I was, or I had become in a past life, mune, o sage vyasa. Uh, I would become the son. <coughs> Dasyastu, kasyaschana, which means indeed of a certain uh, maidservant. A dasi, dasi, a maidservant, dasyas means of a dasi. Dasyas to kasyaschana of a certain one, a particular dasi. And then veda vadinam nirupito balaka eva joginam shushushane. So uh, that means nirupito, I was designated or I was assigned. Balaka eva, I was just a child. Bala means a child, and Balaka means like a little child. And Narada was actually five years old. So, uh, 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 just as a, as, a, as a young child, I was assigned, Nirupito, Shushushane, assigned to the service of uh, yogis, spiritual practitioners, is what it means here. Spiritual practitioners, Vedavadinang, who we're preaching the Vedic wisdom. Vada means speech. Vadi means one who speaks. And for example, Maya Vadi, one who thinks that God is Maya. <clears throat> so this is Veda Vadi Nam, of the Veda Vadis, of those who were teaching the Vedas. And uh, they weren't merely teachers. They were yogis. They were spiritual practitioners. I was just a little child. Still, I was assigned Shushushane to their service to serve them. Prabrashi, during the rainy season, 
nirvivikshatam, and those uh, Vedavadis, those yogis, spiritual practitioners, were looking to settle somewhere for the rainy season. Uh, that's also called Chapter Masya. In India, there is a uh, somewhat um, special weather pattern where after a very hot summer in North India, very, very hot, dry summer, you get the monsoon rains. You get, uh, theoretically, four months of rain. Of course, the, the heavy, heavy rain is not usually doesn't last for four months. But you get heavy rains, the monsoon, very heavy rains. And um, so during that time, uh, if you were a traveling mendicant, a renounced person or whatever, uh, and a lot of the times people would walk barefoot, the roads were not paved, there was no asphalt, uh, dirt roads, you didn't want to be walking around the country during the rainy season. Because a lot of times when you're walking around, they would, you know, sleep out in the open air, and they weren't sure where they would uh, be staying, they might spend the day walking, and during the rainy season, that is just not an option unless you're a uh, little crazy. So uh, they would stop. They would stop Chaturmasya, that, that means four months. They would stop for these for the, during the rainy season. Now, in those days, uh, there were not many cities in India or in Europe or anywhere else in the world. Almost everybody lived on farms or in little farming villages. <clears throat> and so when you stopped, uh, it was very likely you're going to stop in a village. And if a renounced person stops in a village, it means unlike their regular life, they are not secluded because if you're secluded, what are you going to do? You know, so they're not secluded and they're in a small place. That means they're seeing the same people every day. And it means they're seeing the same women every day. And so uh, for a renounced person or a sage, uh, this could get a little um, tricky because unlike your normal lifestyle, you have to stop in one little place. And, and also because the men, obviously men, they, uh, you know, well, the men and the women actually, men and women have many duties to do. But in terms of, uh, you could say domestic care, like cooking and cleaning, and things like that in traditional societies normally that the women did that the men were out in the fields you know like fixing fences and building things and you know behind a plow with an ox and so that generally is what the men did and the women were more doing domestic duties so that means that during this time the same women would be attending these renounced persons offering them service and because of the culture of course, there's great respect. So here you are, you're a guy, you're a man, and uh, you sort of wander around teaching or whatever you do. And uh, four months a year, you are more or less trapped by the weather in a little village. Uh, and there's some woman, and there are a couple women, and they may be attractive. You know, some women are very attractive. And they're serving you literally hand and foot. They're cooking for you. They're doing everything for you. And 
And there you are for months at a time. And meanwhile, their husband is off plowing the field. Of course, not in the rainy season, you wouldn't do much plowing. But the man is probably going about doing business of some kind or another. So you're just alone there with these women, some of whom are very attractive and uh, many of whom are very devoted to you and you know really are just thrilled to be with you and so anyway you can figure out the rest therefore to help these spiritual practitioners or sannyasis or whatever to uh you know survive the rainy season uh they would perform special austerities and not eat very much like don't eat this don't eat that and of course, nowadays for uh, Chapter of Masya, it's like don't eat spinach, don't eat, I guess, uh, don't take milk or dairy products. So, uh, of course, nowadays, the rainy season is not an issue. Chapter of Masya is not, it's not something that Prabhupada taught us to do because whether it's rainy or not raining, we just get in our car and we drive somewhere. And, and so in the modern age, life doesn't stop because it rains. So therefore, um, but back then, that's what they did. They would perform these very strict austerities, uh, very strict austerities, eat very little, uh, hopefully to survive the rainy season. So here we have a group, though, which is interesting. Here we have a group of sages, Vedavadinam, which is plural, and... Uh, <clears throat> So another interesting word here is Shushushane, which is translated here uh, as in the service of. So I was assigned to the service of these sages. The word Shushushane literally means uh, one who wants to hear. One who wants to hear. The, the verb is shrew, to hear, from, from which we get shruti and shravana, shravanam and all those words. And, uh, but here, this is called the desiderative form. It means, you know, someone, in this case, anyway, won't go into all the grammar, it's present participle, but it means I was a person who wanted to hear, literally, but that means to serve, because if you're going to serve someone, you can't serve someone unless they tell you what they want you to do. And so the desire to, so hearing, this word hearing, because it's associated, of course, with Shruti, with the Vedas. And therefore, when you hear the Vedas, you hear to find out what to do. You hear to find out what your duty is. And so the same sense of hearing is used generally, not only in, regard to scriptures but just in general to say that i uh wanted to hear means i wanted to serve i wanted to hear to find out what my duty was how i could serve so and the sages are described as nearly which means they were desiring to settle down for the rainy season and they happened to come there so that's the first Verse here, Narda is beginning to tell the story of his life, which he begins with the word I. And then, te, uh, next, uh, 1524, te maya pitakila chapale arbake, dante 
So here Nara describes his relationship with the sages. He says that, um, well, he's going to say that those sages, the Munio, the Munis, uh, even though they are Tulia Darshana, which means they have equal vision, Tulia means equal. Interesting because uh, Tula can mean a scale, like where you weigh things, balance things. And so Tulia means things are balanced equal. So Tulia Darshanaha, uh, equal, they had equal vision, even though they had equal vision, Yadiyapi, even though they had equal vision, uh, Chakru Kripang, they literally did mercy or, or made mercy in Sanskrit, we would say gave mercy. Uh, they gave mercy to me, Mai, uh, and so why? So here, Narda, he says, even though they had equal vision. In other words, why should they bless me? Why didn't they bless someone else? So why didn't they bless everybody or nobody? They had equal vision, so why did they bless me? And that's what Narda is explaining here. He says, because I was a Petaki the Chapala. Uh, Chapala, Chala means moving, and Chapala means like moving too much, um, being impatient or uh, just going here and going there, agitated, uh, un unsteady. So uh, he said that I was free of all of that. Apeta, apa means away, ita means gone, so apeta means literally gone away. That was to be free of apeta, akila, all, without exception. I was free of all this, uh, Prabhupada translates chapale, proclivities, uh, so chapala means, yeah, to be disturbed, to be moving around. You can't stay anywhere. Sounds like uh, sannyasi, but anyway. Um, chapala in Sanskrit means uh, unsteady, unsteadiness, agitation, fickleness. Uh, and therefore, it can, it can it mean other things, but... So, so children, you know, children often do not have a very long attention span. If you've ever seen that, especially a five-year-old, you know, try to keep a five-year-old's attention for a long time. But Narda says, I was free from all that. I was free from all that. I could actually focus. Arbaka, even though I was a boy. So, te maya peitakila chapale arbake dante. I was... Um, Disciplined, Prabhupada says, having controlled the senses. I was disciplined, adritta kridanake, and I was not literally dritta, not hanging on to uh, my uh, toys and games. I wasn't attached to just toys and games. I was not impatient. I was self-controlled. Anuvartini, and I was actually following them. Anuvartini. I, I had become their follower. And so therefore, even though they have equal vision, because I had all these qualities, uh, they gave me their mercy, chakru kripam, shushushamane, because, because I wanted to serve them. I, was, I wanted to hear from them. And also I was alpabashini, few, I didn't talk too much. Sometimes, you know, children, they can just go on and on and on. And it's hard to get a word in. But here it said, Narda says that I, I was alpa, alpa means little. 
not much. Opabasha, basha speech. So opabashini means I didn't talk, I, I talked, I spoke little. I was just, I wanted to serve them. I wasn't talking too much. So an ideal child, really, <laughs> from an adult point of view. And so therefore, even though they have equal vision, they gave their mercy to me. Then it's, an artist says, Uchishtale pan anumodito vijay sakritsma bhunje tarapasta kilvisha evam prabrittasya vishuddha chetasas tadharma evatma ruchi prajayate. So, uh, sakrit, once, one time, uh, anumodito being Prabhupada says being permitted <clears throat> also the, the the general meaning is uh being delighted with the sages or permitted by the sages uh their remnants uchista lepan uchista means what's what's left left over so uh it's interesting because it sounds like it's not that narda was uh and so lepa, uchista, means literally leftover. <clears throat> and uh, and so it's interesting, uchista lepa, a leftover lepa. So lepa is, in the dictionary, given any grease or dirt sticking to vessels. In other words, he didn't take their food, but he actually took it like from the cooking pots, particles or remnants wiped from the hand. So uh, anyway, the particles, leftover remnants, you know, stuff that was still in the pot, that kind of thing. So, uh, so one time, um, being permitted by the sages or inspired, uh, delighted with the sages, Bunje, I ate, I ate uh, the remnants, and those remnants, apasta. Kilbisha, uh, eliminated, Prabhupada says, uh, my sins, Kilbisha. So, again, what I want to emphasize here, sometimes, uh, you know, there's very, not sometimes, actually a lot of the time among devotees, you find this sort of magical, almost like, you know, this magical sense of how you advance in Krishna consciousness. Uh, but actually, it's not magical. It's it's a question of people deserving something and other people observing that someone deserves and then giving them what they deserve. So uh, the sages, although they have equal vision, uh, they were merciful to Narda. Why? Because Narda was a great kid. He was serving them faithfully. And so it wasn't just that, like, uh, they happened to be there, and so he saw them, and they happened to get, he happened to get zapped. There's a relationship where someone deserves something, someone earns something, and the other person recognizes that and blesses them. And here you have a case where um, he's, he takes the remnants, he's delighted with the sages, he eats the remnants, his sins are removed, but um, but then it says, Avam Prabhupada Vishuddha Chaita says, Thus I was engaged and my mind was purified. But again, he had, because he had very faithfully served them. 
if let's say these sages had come to his village or his mother's little farm and uh, he had not served them and he wasn't interested in them, he just saw some food and said, hey, that looks good and ate it. I don't think we'd be seeing the same result. It's a question of people devotedly and mercifully uh, reciprocating with each other. That's really what's going on here. So, Tadaprasta Kilbisha, my sin, this drove away my sin. And then, thus engaged, Vishuddha Chaita says, with my consciousness purified, Tadharme, it says, anyway, in the word, for, uh, uh, so, uh, anyway. The Sanskrit editors, the BBT, made a little mistake there, but it doesn't matter. So, Tadarma Evakmaruchi Prajayate. Anyway, so he became attracted, a, a taste, Ruchi, for the soul. Sometimes it's said that, well, you know, the soul is just sort of this impersonal thing or doesn't really have feelings, but actually, here it said, Atmaruchi, a real taste, an attraction in the soul and for the soul. Narada starts out by saying, I was five years old, but now he's becoming attracted to his eternal self. Within himself, he's feeling. So Ruchi is described as liking, taste, relish, pleasure, appetite, zest. It means a pleasure in something. So he's feeling this relish, this taste for his own eternal soul. So of course, a very good thing to have. And so that prajayate, it arose, literally it took birth, or it arose, this taste in the soul, taste for the soul, and that, that taste was only for tadharma eva, only for that dharma, which was performed by the sages, because those sages uh, were Vaishnavas, actually. The sages were Vaishnavas. Uh, so, as we'll find out, actually, these were Vaishnava sages. So the next verse says, because tatan vaham, so there, there in that situation, in that place, anvaham, daily, Um, Krishna Kata Pragayatam. Daily, uh, they were singing and Pragayatam. They were singing out Krishna Kata. So Gayatam means singing, and Pragayatam means they were singing out. They were really singing uh, Krishna Kata daily, every day. So these were Vaishnava sages. These uh, Vedavadis, these yogis, were Vaishnavas. And so every day there, they were singing out. And Krishna Kata here is in the plural. It's in the plural, the Krishna Katas, the stories about Krishna. And Anugrahina, by mercy, Ashranavam, I heard, I was listening. By, by, by their mercy, I was listening. And those Krishna Katas, those stories about Krishna were Manohara, uh, which Prabhupada translates here, um, attractive. Literally, Manohara means 
they take away the mind. They just capture the mind. Manohara. They were so they were they were uh, attractive, literally taking my mind. And talk shadhya me. So I was listening to those stories and shadhya with faith. I was listening with faith. And so uh, for me, in me, anupadang vishinvataha was hearing attentively. The word shinvata would mean hearing. Vishinvata means really focusing. Anupadang at every step. And so priya shavasi. In the Lord, who is Priyashivas, who is very, it's very enjoyable to hear about him. And Priyashivas means also by hearing about him, it awakens your love. So Priyashivasi. So in that Lord, Anga, oh, Vyastev, Mama Abhavad Ruchi, a real taste, a real attraction developed in me uh, as I was hearing. Um, with faith, actually, with real faith. I was hearing about that Krishna Kata from these Vaishnava sages, and uh, Anupadang means, uh, Prabhupada translates it every step, step by step means gradually. It didn't just happen, you know, it wasn't like he got zapped one day, but his attraction, his taste kept increasing day by day, step by step. So we'll do, do one more verse here. Try to give you your money's worth. Tasmings tada labda rucher mahamate. Priya shavasyaskalita matir mama. Yahamitat sadasat swamayaya pashemai brahmani kalpitang pare. This is a question. Oh, we're getting questions. We'll do the questions more at the end. So, um, so Tasmings, Prabhupada being so, Tasmin can also refer to Krishna, Priyashravasi. Anyway, we won't go into the grammar. So, in that Lord uh, about whom we love to hear, basically, Priyashravasi, it's. Um, so then, Tada, for me, who was Labda Ruchi, Labda Ruchair, I had achieved a taste, a real pleasure in hearing about the Lord. And then Mahamate is an art addressing Vyasdev, O great minded one. So uh, when I had achieved a taste, uh, a real attraction to the Lord, uh, then my mind became askalita, literally means like unslipping. Like sometimes, you know, our minds have a very strong tendency to slip out of Krishna consciousness. I'm sure you're all aware. Askalita means unshaken, unyielding, not stumbling or slipping, undeviated. Because skalita means someone slipped. And so it can mean stumble, they deviated. So not stumbling or slipping, undeviating, uninterrupted, unimpeded, undisturbed. So that was my mind. My mind, my consciousness was like that. Which of course is a very powerful Krishna consciousness. And so, uh, 
So that was my state. I developed this un, unimpeded, unslipping, unwavering. Uh, my mind was unwavering in its Krishna consciousness. And I acquired a real taste, a real attraction for the Lord, whom literally we love to hear about. And yaya, which means uh, with that consciousness, pare. So, um, Prabhupada translates it, uh, it was only in my ignorance that I had accepted gross and subtle coverings. So he can now see, this is what he can now see, Pashe, I now see that Swamayaya, by my own illusion, by my own illusion that I had imagined, Kalpitang means imagined, uh, that etat, it's very, this is sort of a, a Sanskrit uh, shortcuts. And in Sanskrit, in, in philosophical Sanskrit, and even in other uh, things like in uh, other forms of literature, such as grammar and so on, it's really an art to say things with as few words as possible. They really love that art. You know, don't waste words, just say what you mean in as few words as possible, because if you can say the same things with fewer words, why are you using more words? So in this case, uh, eta just means this, this. And so in Sanskrit, just like in Spanish or other language, you have this, that, and the far one, like uh, esto, eso, and aquello. Isn't it in Spanish? This, this means what's right in front of you, that means it's it's over there and that you know that one over there we don't really have that in english but they have it in, in all the latin languages something even farther so they have that in sanskrit they have these uh impersonal pronouns and so here eta just means this uh, or actually and, and and so this just means this world also another way of saying this is idam it's just like in the Isopanishad, Om Purnamidam. This world is full. So how does Idam mean this world? Because it literally just means this. Because this is obviously what's right in front of you. So it's this world, because that's what's in front of you right now. So Om Purnamidam Purnamadak. And Adak means the farther one, which is, so what's far from you right now, the higher world, the spiritual world. Anyway, so this, Sada Sat, which means Prabhupada translates it gross and subtle, or the world of material cause and effect, or that which is literally said, us said, here one day, gone tomorrow. In other words, this material world. So by this, uh, by my own illusion, by this, my own illusion, this uh, world of, of uh, becoming, of existing and non existing, had been imagined. I had imposed it by imagination. I'd imagined this material nature in myself and in the absolute uh in the transcendence and the transcendence of the brahman so i had in other words i was seeing through a material screen it's like if you're wearing i guess dark glasses everything gets dark and so if you're wearing blue glasses everything looks blue so 
when you're seeing everything through this illusion, then everything looks to be material. Atheists, actually, I was, um, last several days, I was watching on YouTube uh, debates between the most famous atheists of our time and uh, different, you could say, religious philosophers or good philosophers. And what really shocked me is how the atheists were just, they had no concept of philosophy. And they were giving this argument, that argument. They, in every case, they were completely ignorant of the history of religion. They just took the worst possible version of religion and thought that was all religion. Uh, when philosophical, good philosophical arguments were made, they actually didn't understand them and attacked on a different point. So the extent to which these so-called famous atheists really are incapable of doing serious philosophy. I don't mean to say serious philosophy is that you have to believe in God. It's just You just have to know what the arguments are, what's being said, and, and they actually couldn't, they were just oblivious. They, they would just talk as if they just didn't understand the argument. So I, was, uh, I, I expected them to be a little more intelligent than they actually were, so-called famous atheists. Anyway, so Narda had imagined all that, in, uh, but now he's, be, he's become enlightened, and he's become enlightened in a very classic way. He um, Somehow or other, he got contact with advanced Vaishnavas, sages. They were yogis. They were practitioners. They were spiritually, they were spiritual practitioners. They were Vedavadi. Now that's also significant because Vedavadi means that they were preachers. They were preachers. They, they had knowledge, but they were speaking the knowledge. They were talking among themselves and they let him hear. So these were people who were actively talking about Krishna, actively talking about Krishna and those around them. Now it's very interesting that Narada does not say his mother became a devotee. This is very interesting. In fact, his mother dies and he takes it somewhat philosophically, but I guess I shouldn't talk about that on Women's Day. But what's interesting, I guess it is not the right Women's Day story, but, but still it's true. Anyway, the devotee women are very intelligent, but it's interesting that um, his mother, who must have been hearing the same thing, because it's not that they lived in a mansion. It's not like Narda's downstairs uh, with the sages and his mother's up in her dressing room or something. I mean, she's a, you know, this is a woman who, as we find out later, just goes out to milk the cows in the middle of the night. I mean, she has no servants. And in that culture, you know, people had servants. It's a rural culture, but she had no servants. She was just a, um, in fact, uh, Narda describes her as a dasi. She is basically a, a shudra lady. She's just a very simple lady that has a cow and goes out and milks her cow and does services here and there. She's hosting, she must not have had a big place and yet she's hosting these sages, which means that whatever little space she had, she had to not rent out, but I mean, obviously she was pious because she gave shelter to these sages. She's not a bad person. She's obviously a pious lady. But when they were speaking about Krishna, again, they must've just lived in a cottage, a little cottage. She must've heard it also. Because it said pragayatam, they were singing out Krishna Kata. They weren't whispering it. They weren't doing Krishna Kata Japa. They were singing out the glories of the Lord. So she heard it and she must have taken their remnants too. She was a faithful lady. That's why she hosted them. And so she must have taken a little remnant. So she did the same things Narda did, but without the same attitude. Again, not a bad person, but 
Narada was special. And so therefore it's not described that she became a devotee, interestingly. Not in the same way Narada did. So again, we have reciprocation. Anyway, uh, his mother, we have to give credit to his mother. She did invite the sages to stay with them. And of course, we don't know whether, I mean, it doesn't actually, so they're looking for a place to stay. Did they actually stay in Narda's cottage or did his mother just tell her, uh, you know, his mother obviously gave permission for him to serve the sages. It said he was Nirupi, though. He was assigned to the sages. So undoubtedly, his mother got a lot of credit also for assigning him to serve the sages. Okay, so now let's see if there are any questions. Okay, one second. Uh, actually, a one of my senior disciples, Sarvatma, is here. And he has a question. Do you want, you want to come and ask? You can come and ask a question on... This is Sarvatma, who's been preaching for a very, very long time. Uh, Here. Okay. My question is, well, we have, we have been distributing prasadam for ages, I mean, personally. And I don't hide the fact that we are devotees and we tell people about Krishna if they want to hear about it. And sometimes they don't. But the majority of people who take prasadam from us, they have no desire to know anymore that that the food is good, and they come repeatedly, and they're they're very nice. They're basically like Narada's mom. So, would they get any benefit, or or this is just a, like a pre precluding? A good life, and in the next life, they may become inquisitive. So there's nothing happening. All right. Thank you. Um, as I've said many, many times, uh, as far as the Gyata Sukriti, Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita 17, it's 28, the last verse of chapter 17 in the Gita, that, and Prabhupada actually says, makes this point also, that the benefit you get from these activities, taking prasadam, hearing the chanting, it also depends on your consciousness. And um, the, the picture Krishna gives very clearly in the Bhagavad Gita is that you choose spiritual life. Krishna asks her, June at the end, so what are you going to do? And Arjuna says, Kriche Vachanantava. I'm going to do what you said. So uh, the, the benefit that one gets from all these things like prasadam and hearing the chanting depends also on one's consciousness. There's some benefit, you could say, even if you're not in the right consciousness, but to get the real benefit that you become a devotee, you actually make advancement. Uh, that's the picture Krishna gives in the Gita. He says he reciprocates with everyone. So Krishna arranges that someone takes prasadam, then we understood that person somehow deserved it. And so uh, for some reason. So I think I think the emphasis has to be on recipro Krishna's reciprocation and deserving rather than the emphasis on sort of spiritual magic. So all of those who are devotees in the movement nowadays, they were devotees. So all he said all those who are devotees now were devotees. In chapter 6 of the Gita, Krishna says that if you're just sort of drawn into the movement, and it's not that you go through some very long, slow cultivation, you're sort of drawn to it, that's because that's you're reviving your knowledge from past life, that's in the Gita. 
toward the end of chapter six. Let me see what other questions we have here. Uh, listening to this class on the speaker, okay? Even if they do not listen, the soul will hear and purify their hearts. That depends, uh, not nearly as much as if they listen with some faith. That's what Krishna says in the Gita 1728. He says, any religious activity you engage in, if you don't really believe in what you're doing, there is very little result in this life or the next life. Krishna specifically says in this life or the next life. So there may be some benefit, but if we actually want to make devotees, uh, we need to really persuade people the way Krishna persuaded Arjuna. So what is the balance to remaining grateful for Krishna's blessings and still understanding we deserve the good things that happen to us? It's interesting. Without getting proud of our good karma or sentimentalists that think everything is, quote, causeless mercy, unquote. Uh, as I've said, causeless mercy is not actually a term that you find in Shastra. Uh, Prabhupada uses it. It's not, it's not wrong. Uh, but in fact, the word mercy means causeless. In other words, that's that's what mercy is. It means you're not, if you're just giving someone what they deserve, that's justice. And so mercy is not justice. It's sometimes giving people what they may not fully deserve. So, um, but, there, but to say it's causeless, um, Krishna is generous. Krishna says in the Gita, he is Suhrita, that you should know him to be literally the good-hearted friend. Suhrit literally means good heart. So you should know him to be the good-hearted friend of everyone. So Krishna actually uh, gives everyone mercy. And if you reciprocate with Krishna, then you get great mercy because he's reciprocating with you. So Narada's behavior as a child or Pralada Dhruva seems unnatural to the regular modern child. If Narada, Pralada, and Dhruva are anything, they're not like modern children. How can we educate in Krishna consciousness our children without expecting too much of them? Well, first thing is you're going to have to just sort of come to grips with the fact that probably your child is not Narada Muni or Prahlad or Dhruva, so we have to sort of face that. And then um, we have to do what every good parents do, uh, just do the best for them. We have to educate ourselves in Krishna consciousness. We have to educate ourselves actually in the science of child rearing. It's interesting because, of course, the so-called social scientists make all kinds of mistakes, as other scientists do also. Uh, we got bad advice for maybe 30 or 40 or 50 years about fat. Now it turns out fat is good and carbohydrates make us fat. It only took, you know, so they were only giving us bad advice for about half a century, maybe. Maybe more than half a century. Anyway, so another bit of really bad advice was uh, because of sort of the, you know, old hippies that went back to college and became psychologists, uh, we got this child-raising psych uh, philosophy, you know, like where you never really criticize your child, never don't discipline your child. Like if your child is in a little soccer league, everyone has to play, you know, they, you know, destroy the team and everyone wins and there's no losers. And it's like, and, and so what was found out was that um, this was just destroying the children. And that's why we have Everyone knows now that, like in the colleges, a lot of the kids are, are very weak-minded. 
if anyone comes to campus to speak that simply disagrees with them, they need a safe space where they can be coddled and they can be protected from the harsh, devastating, medically dangerous reality that someone disagrees with them. So they, they've actually attributed this to the uh, way they've been parented. So, yeah, so I mean, you know, you want to say, well, just read the science on it, but sometimes they don't get that right. Let me finish the question. Uh, so we shouldn't expect too much of them. Uh, I don't think you can expect anything. I mean, they just are what they are. We, we, you know, mothers and fathers should try to be the best mother and father they can possibly be. There is a lot of good science. There is a lot of, you know, be a good person, be a good devotee and educate yourself and then do your best. And so as far as expectations, I think in the Gita, Krishna says, do your duty, but with detachment, the result belongs to me. And so I don't think we can really have any expectations. We just, we just do our duty the best we possibly can. You know, love the children, do everything you can for them. But as far as expectations, I don't think we can have many. Or even repressing their playful children, childlike behavior, like playing or not letting children play. That's an interesting idea. Um, like playing or taking questions, talking, questioning a lot. If I mean, I, it's a blessing. If your child is asking about everything, it means you have an intelligent child. You should be grateful and you should try to give intelligent answers. Uh, that seems to be a healthy process. Yes, yeah, it's a sign of intelligence. I mean, if your child never asks about anything, you should really be worried. That seems to be a healthy process to growing up as a balanced adult. Yes, how to how to avoid burning out our children, even as they burn us out. Just kidding. So how, how to avoid burning out your child? Uh, be a good mother and father. What children need, according to, I think, reliable science, they need discipline boundaries, but they also need love. So if you love your children, but you also give them proper boundaries, then you're a good parent. If you love them, but don't give them boundaries, uh, no. If you give them boundaries and don't love them, that's also no. So in, in, in the name of raising good, just do the, raising good ways, do the best you can. That's all you can do. You don't know, I mean, some parents seem to have, you know, these little rays of Vishnu. Some of them have seem to have little Hiranyakashipus. You know, it just depends. Yeah, I mean, generally, you could. I mean, we know that as Prabhupada preached, and we see in Prahlad, sometimes great devotees are born to demons, and you know, maybe the opposite sometimes happens. We don't know, but of course, we just do the best we can. If we just do the best we can, and everything else belongs to Krishna. So, another one, chapter twelve. I think Krishna says that devotional service is a straightforward process to purify the senses and acquire knowledge. Uh, Oh, and, and acquiring knowledge is last. Oh, I see. This is referring to chapter 12. Like, you know, just fix your mind to me. If you can't do that, practice sadhana bhakti. If you can't do that, and just work for me and so on, that list. And last, uh, purifying sense, acquiring knowledge is last in the process when you cannot focus 100% in service. Follow the principles or work or offer the fruits for labor to Krishna. Here, Narada seems to confirm Devotional service, uh, especially to other Vaishnavas, is what saved him. Someone from a simple birth. Could you elaborate on this concept of devotional service versus cultivating knowledge? I think the verse is 12, 12. Well, yeah. 
because if you're serving, it means you already have knowledge. Someone's trying to figure things out, and someone who's serving is very fortunate, actually has figured it out, where Krishna revealed the truth. And so they're actively serving. I mean, Narada, you could say, well, Narada, you could say he didn't understand everything. He was just serving. He was a pious child. But but it does say he was attracted to them as Vaishnavas. He was definitely attracted to them. And they may not have been the first sages that came through town. You know, Narada, of course, he was young, but there, he had seen other rainy seasons, I guess, at least one or two. But um, he was specifically attracted to Krishna and to those sages. So, um, Lord Chaitanya hadn't appeared. Do you think the world, if Lord Chaitanya hadn't appeared, do you think the world would be far worse off today? Oh, yeah. Very, very worse off. I mean, we might even have a worse president in the United States. Take some imagination, but yeah, um, I think definitely, yeah, Lord Chaitanya saved the world. One can know the difference between right and wrong actions as Krishna talks about in the Gita. I hope so. I mean, yeah, it's, I hope we can know what's right and wrong. Uh, otherwise, how, can we, how are we going to live our lives? And some people don't know what's right and wrong. They end up in trouble. So is mercy, the way it's used in the Krishna conscious movement, the same as the term grace? Yeah, you could say that prasada, for example, the word prasada, kripa, yeah, you, you could say it's, you know, roughly the same. Let's see what the dictionary says about grace. Uh, it can mean, well, that's a different move, gracefully. Simple elegance or refinement of movement. That's, a, that's physical grace. Courteous goodwill, as in at least he has the grace to admit his debt to her. Now, in Christian belief, the free and unmerited favor of God is manifested in the salvation of sinners and the bestowal of blessing, that's actually one type of Christianity, which is, I think, not the most intelligent, personally. There are other types of Christianity where they think unmerited. In other words, I don't deserve it at all. God just saved this undeserving person and sent that undeserving person to hell. Uh, God is not crazy like that. Imagine a mother that has two children. They both behave exactly the same way. So she slaps one of them or stabs the child and then the other child gives candy and embraces the child, I love you. And, and the children behave the same way. I mean, obviously, that mother would uh, lose her children. And, the, you know, child protection services would, if they were alert, would take the children away because she's an unfit, crazy mother. And so why should we say that God is unfit and crazy in the sense that he, for no good reason, discriminates among his own children? So that particular philosophy, which sometimes surfaces even among devotees, in every religion. In every religion, you find some people, what I call them as the over-pious, who are so eager to give all credit to God that they insist that no one deserves anything. And therefore, since everyone is completely undeserving, the fact that some undeserving people are saved, while other equally undeserving people go to hell, that's just causeless mercy. It's also causeless malice. It's also causeless discrimination and causeless nonsense. You know, any parent or any guardian, anyone who's, who is looking over other people and and it's just unfair and for the, exactly the same behavior punishes one and rewards the other, 
whoever does that is just unfit to be in charge of anyone. So to attribute that nonsense to God has always struck me as, struck me as just as nonsense. So here it said, in, Christ, in certain, it says in Christian belief, it's just certain kinds of Christian belief, obviously. So, I mean, a lot of Christians have common sense. That the free and unmerited favor of God. I've seen MMA fighters after beating, beating people to a pulp saying, it wasn't me, God, God did this. Uh, well, yes. So, tenemos, so this Portuguese, I'll translate it into English. We would have to, do we have to include women and married preachers or will we re oh we'll repeat the failure of the catholics in brazil clearly not a uh, not a uh, powerful recommendation of brazilian catholics but obviously that what is that what that's referring to it's not just brazil of course it's 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 the church in general which is going through a lot of transition. I mean, the church has been very strongly affected by just all the forces of the modern world. And there's a debate going on in the church about letting uh, women be uh, priests and all that, or take more responsibility. Uh, as you probably know, I'm strongly in favor of that. I mean, the point is, I think what's particularly unfortunate about the Catholic situation, and I don't wanna just you know bash the Catholic church here, but what's, what's particularly, I think, irrational about it, well, there's two irrational things. And uh, this is not to say that there aren't many good Catholics. There are many good Catholics. But um, number one, we already know, we already know that women can be very good ministers. They can be good religious. We already know that because in, in most of the Protestant, in most of the Protestant uh, religions, or many of them, Women are ministers, and you know some of them do a great job. So you could say, well, we don't know if women can be ministers. Yeah, we do know, because it's been going on for a long time, and there are thousands and thousands of very qualified and very effective women ministers. And so to say they can't do it, it's just sort of like causeless or just sort of intentional stupidity because we know they can and it's not that among the protestants because they allow women to be ministers everyone is just you know falling down into uh i don't know sort of you know interdenominational orgies or something i mean it's not that it's not that the world is ending actually it's the opposite they have a lot less child abuse they have a lot less they have less sexual problems than the people that exclude women so therefore, this, this policy of not allowing women, I think, is just sort of people who are determined to be foolish and not allowing women to take spiritual responsibility. So um, the other reason they give for it, which is like, I think, remarkably irrational. I actually heard someone say this. The person that said this is a, uh, and you, but you can hear from some, you know, certain senior ISKCON devotees also same argument and it's, it's a terrible argument and that is that um this woman's day right so let's let's go there um in the case of of christianity they say that when jesus chose his apostles he only chose men i actually heard a cardinal a catholic cardinal who was uh 
I think in the Boston area, I forget his name. I saw him interviewed on uh, one of the major American networks. And uh, he is a very good friend of the present Pope and is the Pope put him in charge of the whole area of child abuse, which is obviously one of the largest departments in the church. And uh, so he's a very important, very important Cardinal, one of the, one of the leaders. And he was, he was a nice guy, you know, and he, he was, he's a nice guy and he was trying to be nice. He was being interviewed by a lady who's a very famous reporter in America. I mean, I forgot her name right now because, you know, we, anyway, but, but she, she's very well, she, she's a very well known host of the evening. Actually now she was promoted. She's the host of the evening news. I think it's on CBS actually, CBS or NBC. Anyway, so, and she's, you know, she's a really good lady, intelligent, intelligent and fair. She was asking some tough questions, but she was being very nice about it. So she was, you know, I, I think she's a very good journalist anyway. So she asked this, this cardinal why women, you know, why women can't be priests. And he gave this really bad answer, trying to be nice. He said, well, he said, if I was creating my own religion, I might do it some other way, but we have to follow Jesus. And uh, this is the way Jesus set up his church, which of course is nonsense. And, and, and what she's referring, because we know actually from the book of Acts that in the early church, women were leaders in the early church. And it wasn't until about a thousand years after Jesus, they said women couldn't be priests. Mm -hmm. So that's the first kind of, uh, the first problem with his argument. But also, if you say that, well, Jesus only made men apostles, then what you're saying is that when Jesus chose apostles, he was establishing, which is absurd, a, uh, a body type qualification he was establishing a bodily qualification that by choosing men he meant only men well if that's true then you could say the only people and first of all he was the choosing apostles not priests but never mind that so, so, so i mean the argument is actually just absurd on many levels but if you accept that jesus was establishing a bodily qualification for priests then it would follow logically and necessarily that the only people who uh, can be priests in the Catholic Church are Jews born in Israel. That's definitely going to shake up the church because actually all the apostles were Jewish and they were all from Israel and the Jesus movement did not become a separate religion, did not even use the word Christianity until much later. And so at the time that Jesus appointed his apostles, uh, it was seen by everyone, including the apostles, uh, as a branch of Judaism. And that's why in the New Testament, Jesus is often addressed as rabbi, it's right there in the New Testament. So therefore, if we take the argument of this highly placed cardinal, it follows that the only people we want to follow Jesus who can be Catholic priests are Jews born in Israel. So if they follow that, if they follow Jesus strictly, we're going to see a very different church very soon. So again, the argument's absurd. And yet I've heard the same argument from ISKCON leaders. Not all of them, I can't say even most of them, but there was a paper put out 
uh, several years ago explaining why women shouldn't be gurus in ISKCON. And uh, uh, 10 years ago, this paper, eight years, I can't remember anymore. And the argument was exactly the same. It's when Prabhupada chose not apostles, but when Prabhupada chose gurus, maybe it was, maybe, maybe actually I'm an apostle, but anyway, I'll think about that. I'll get back to you on that one. But when Prabhupada was choosing gurus for his movement, he only chose men. But he didn't just choose men, he chose a certain kind of man. And so if you take the general principle that Prabhupada was establishing a bodily filter, a bodily qualification to be a guru, if that's true, then the logical, logically necessary conclusion is that the only people who can be gurus in ISKCON are white male Americans. So if you're not white, if you're not a man, and you're not American, you cannot be a guru in ISKCON. And therefore, we have this terrible situation where people who are not white and not Americans have been made ISKCON gurus. So we, we should all be concerned about that. According to according to the uh, this sort of standard argument against women becoming gurus in ISKCON, uh, ISKCON has already deviated by appointing people that aren't Americans and aren't white, but are men. I mean, obviously, this is all nonsense. This is all just complete nonsense. And so, um, anyway, now you know my opinion on Women's Day. So, uh, a few more questions here. Uh, so, yeah, Grace, to answer the question, yeah, Grace, I think, is basically mercy. Uh, speaking about presidents, how do you see spiritual leaders who publicly express and defend their political opinions and influence other devotees, how do you see a consequential division? Um, Prabhupada sometimes pointed out the hypocrisy and foolishness of politicians. Um, I think there's a difference between pointing out the inevitable hypocrisy and nonsense of most political leaders and uh but doing it with equal vision as krishna says if someone there's a difference between let's say pointing out that now we have this leader and this leader in some way or some ways is unqualified or that the world will be better off if this person and not that person is elected and so devotees do have opinions on these things um it's hard to say that no one should ever do this because people do do it. At the same time, I think you cross a line, a devotee crosses a line or when, or any good person crosses a line when, precisely when they become sectarian or they become fanatical in the sense that it's just like, for example, there was recently a, um, an announcement made by some devotees in one country uh, criticize, strongly criticizing a, a senior devotee who was, who was uh, arguing in favor of a particular politician. And uh, this politician uh, is on the right, political right. And the argument was that uh, devotees, especially people who are leaders in ISKCON, people who are spiritual leaders in ISKCON, should not get involved like this. They should not 
uh, speak out in favor of politicians. And so what I, the way I responded to this was that, yeah, there's some logic there, but to be fair and to be, to be right, we have to say it would be just as bad if this spiritual leader spoke out in favor of a politician on the other side, or uh, if the other person on the other side also had, was problematic. And so extremism is crazy, and extremists are pretty crazy, in my view. And whether they're on the left or right, they tend to be dangerous. And so what I ultimately fear is extremists, because the truth is balanced. And uh, of course, you could say in the case of, let's say, someone like Hitler or Stalin, uh, you know, if, if someone said, you know, we have to get rid of Hitler or Stalin, you, and someone could say, well, no, we have to be balanced. You know, there's problems on both sides. So, I mean, obviously, sometimes there is such a degree of evil that it, it just, you have to oppose it because it's just such an extreme amount of evil. Uh, but as far as devotees, another point is if they if they tie their if they tie their views to principles, like for example, I believe that uh, that it's not right to murder innocent children in the womb, and because this politician is enthusiastically promoting infanticide, I oppose that. I mean, I can understand that, but Prabhupada, one thing you notice about Prabhupada is he doesn't really mention very many politicians by name. Maybe sometimes in, pri in private conversations he would, and of course, in a sense, the Prabhupada had no private conversations because everything was recorded and everything is now in database. <laughs> and so, um, but yeah, you will hear Prabhupada sometimes criticizing certain political leaders from India or talking even about certain political leaders in other countries, but... Uh, he didn't really, it, it didn't become uh, like a constant topic. It's not that he really was into it and he really spent time and energy. He might just mention something. So it's difficult to say that, you know, no devotee, especially a leader in ISKCON, should ever make any comment about a politician. That's, that's going to be very hard to enforce. I think it's a question of not being extremist, not being fanatical, being fair, being balanced, make sure you have your facts lined up. And uh, I mean, I have opinions. For example, in America right now, uh, there there's a politician who is advocating uh, some policies, and I know for a fact that those same policies in other countries caused a disaster. And of course, that person doesn't know it. So, I mean, it's hard not to have any opinions, but we should just be careful not to talk about it too much and to be fair and don't get dragged into it because inevitably in politics, people disagree, they, they get really angry. And so if someone's a preacher, they should avoid getting too involved in these things. And that's why even myself, I educated myself or tried to about certain things. I came to certain strong views and I talked about it for a while, but now I'm just kind of, you know, it's not something I'm going to spend my life talking about. Will you attend the grand opening of the Vedic Planetarium? Uh, no, actually. I won't. Uh, I think it's very nice. Prabhupada wanted it. Uh, I have my personal views. Uh, I believe that, and I know the, the, uh, Ambarish 
finance it. I consider him to be a really excellent devotee. I know he loves Prabhupada very much, and Prabhupada told him to do that. So I uh, I respect the fact that as a very devoted disciple of Prabhupada, he did that. In terms of how much money was spent, not only by him, I think Ambarish is an excellent devotee, but in general, how ISKCON, I, I have to be honest. I think that the real problem in ISKCON is not that we need uh, you know, another like super huge, gigantic temple. The, Prabhupada said we need a planetarium. The decision to make it this gigantic, biggest of all temples ever, you know, that was a decision by various leaders. Uh, I think the real problem is that Prabhupada's Western mission, which he said was the whole key to his, to the success of his movement. That's why I put it in his Pranam Mantra, Paschati Deshatarni. I think if, if, you know, even say half that money, they would have built something half as big and used half the money to promote ISKCON education, to build the world's best schools, to have seminaries so that ISKCON leaders actually are educated and can speak logically about theology and so on and so forth. In other words, we actually had a more educated society if we had just the best educational system for our children. That would have undoubtedly attracted thousands, probably millions of non-devotee children. It's just like devotee parents. Um, uh, sometimes if they live in a certain place where there's no devotee school, uh, they will send their kids to a private school or a public school or you know sometimes Catholic schools. Why? Uh, because it's the best school and you know parents want the best school for their children. So I think if we would have spent, maybe spent, I have to say this because, because I think it's true. I think if ISKCON would have spent half the money on the planetarium, still build it. Prabhupada gave the order to Ambarish. It was his sacred duty to do it. I think he's a really good devotee. And uh, it's to his credit that he faithfully carried out Prabhupada's order to him. But if ISKCON, lead, you know, but I think what ISKCON leaders should have done is maybe built something not quite as big, spent a lot of money, not just for temples, because ISKCON seems to think that the more temples you do, the more rituals you perform, uh, the greater life is. I think if we were as concerned about education, educating our own children, educating people, uh, say in the Western countries, uh, the effect for our movement would have been far, far, far greater. I think amazing things could have been done to revive the heart of Prabhupada's movement, as he puts in his Pranam Mantra, as he, as he wrote, Paschati Deshatarni. So yeah, I think that this, this very powerful tendency to always prioritize ritual and temples, you know, because that's why you build a temple, to perform rituals. I mean, obviously Krishna is in the temple, and we do worship Krishna in the temple, but it is a ritual. I don't mean that in a pejorative sense. I don't mean that it's a bad thing, but it is a ritual. And the Bhagavatam does say that if someone is puja-centric, if someone is puja-centric, in other words, we all want to see the deities. We all become inspired and feel love of Krishna by seeing deities beautifully dressed in worship. But Prabhupada said, we take that inspiration, we go out to save the world. So, if, But if someone, if the center of someone's life is puja, then the Bhagavatam says that is the third class position. And the second class position you worship Krishna, you do puja, but really what inspires you or, or what you do with the inspiration you get from the deity is you go out and try to help other people. 
So uh, if we built as many schools as we did temples, if we spent as much money on education as we did on rituals, uh, we might actually have a sex successful movement in the Western world and other parts of the world outside of India. But, but you have to explain what you mean by education because to the Buddhist education. Okay, education. Anyway, they can't hear you. Explain what I mean by education. Yeah, I, I, I mean by, by education. Anyway, anyway, education means that you have first-class schools, you have first-class schools for our children, and you educate the world. You have programs, you have a seminary, you educate ISKCON leaders, and then educated devotees go out and educate the general public. I mean, we don't have to get into all the details of education. No, to the what is Bhakti Shastri means education. Bhakti Shastri is a great program to prepare you to give classes to other devotees. And uh, Bhakti Shastri is good. It's a very good program. But we need first-class schools, and we need to train devotees to speak to non-devotees. We need to train devotees. Prabhupada says that. Prabhupada says in, in, in the purport, and we, we read it actually a few, day, a few weeks ago, Actually, last week we read it, that human life, human society achieves perfection by education, the sciences. By the regular, you could say mundane education, human society achieves perfection when it gets that, Prabhupada says, it gets that education and devotes it to Krishna. So, uh, but the real reason I won't go to the Vedic planetarium opening, first of all, health I just, uh, it's just, I'm getting a little too, my body's getting a little too old to fly in India and back. And so, uh, so I'm not going to go. And uh, so it's not just a, like a protest. I'm not boycotting the opening as a protest. But I, uh, and again, I appreciate all the devotees who've done very sincere work to build, a, you know, a great temple. But I, I can't help saying that I'm a little disappointed that, uh, we don't realize that a Brahmin, of course, you could say that the Vedic planetarium is meant to educate people about Vedic cosmology. That's education. However, even there, uh, to be honest, I think that uh, they uh, did not necessarily take the best possible science, although they're trying, trying to correct it. So it is educational. The planetarium is meant to be educational. We'll have to wait and see how many Western people actually go to East India to see it. Hopefully a lot of people will go. If a lot of people go to see that planetarium, that will represent a dramatic change in uh, travel patterns as they now exist in the world. So will that very big temple, the very large dome, will it change world travel patterns? We hope so, we'll have to wait and see. So thank you all very much. Uh, I think I'll stop here. I've gone on quite a while. And uh, thank you all for listening. And hopefully uh, haven't scared you all away. And we'll see you next week. Hare Krishna.